Welcome to our panel today. Thanks for coming and braving the weather. I know it's really cold outside, so I'm glad you're here with us. Um, we are talking about pop culture and social change today, and it is part of our One Book, One College programming. So as you may know, we are talking about Ms. Marvel, the graphic novel, throughout the course of the year. We have a lot of really great um, programs coming up over the spring semester, but the one I really want to highlight for everyone here is our Ms. Marvel author visit. So G. Willow Wilson is the writer of Ms. Marvel. She'll be coming to campus in April, April 10th at 1 p.m. She'll be talking about her writing process for graphic novels, what it's like to work on one of the biggest, most popular graphic novels kind of happening right now. Um, she also just started writing for Wonder Woman, so that's super exciting. And then in the evening on April 11th at 7 p.m., she will talk about her conversion to Islam. So she um, was born in Iowa, grew up Christian, and then converted as a uh, young adult. And so she'll be talking about her faith and what, what that conversion process was like and what her faith means to her now and how that influences her work. So please join us in April for that. And we will go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Tish. I'm one of the librarians here. I'm going to be moderating this panel. Um, we're going to be talking about, as I mentioned, pop culture and social change. So the description uh, of this panel is that movies, TV, comic books, novels, and music have helped to drive social change throughout the years. Discussions about civil rights, LGBTQ rights, protesting war, supporting veterans, and many other topics have been explored through popular culture. The entertainment inter industry has been a form of self-reflection for society. So what kinds of changes have been driven by popular culture, and when we use popular culture in the classroom, what can we learn? So that's kind of the overarching theme. I'm going to let my panelists introduce themselves, and then we'll kind of dive in. Hi, uh, my name is Bill Hogan. I'm an instructor of communications and literature. Hi, I'm Carrie Millsap Spears. I'm professor of communications and literature. And my name is John Nash, and I teach public speaking here at Marine. Thank you so much for joining me. They are all uh, have a lot of expertise to share with us, and I want to get us started by providing some examples of the kind of pop culture you think of when you think of social change. So maybe it will help us identify what it is we want to talk about and what kinds of pop culture qualify in this discussion. And anybody can start. I guess that means me. <laughs> okay, so social change, I think, is something we kind of have to define a little bit. So I put up on this PowerPoint slide, you can see this is sort of the trajectory that we're going to take today, to, you know, talking a little bit about um, civil rights, LGBTQ rights, et cetera, from there, and the idea about how that kind of plays out in the entertainment industry. There are some popular culture scholars who have some divisions between pop culture and popular culture, even the words are sort of distinctive. So mass culture, media studies, all of these things kind of are part of this. So when we talk about how popular culture can make social change, one of the things you should consider, let me see if I can do this. Oh yeah. Check it out. <laughs> um, is the idea that the, this is a quote from uh, uh, Ray Brown and his article about culture. And he is one of the most famous popular culture scholars. He is also um, the person that has a library named after him at Bowling Green State University. And at that particular institution, they actually, speaking of social change, wanted to bring in a white castle, the, the restaurant, 
um, as part of their library because of the impact of White Castle <laughs> um, on a lot of popular culture. So that's something kind of interesting to, to discuss as well. But the his quote up there, I'll read it. Most important, um, the popular culture of a country is the voice of the people, the lifeblood of daily existence. In the United States, popular culture is presumably the voice of democracy, what makes America the country she is. And so the idea that we vote with our wallets, right, what we go to see becomes popular. So I had some numbers here. Black Panther is a thing. <laughs> um, this movie is winning a lot of awards, being nominated for an Academy Award, just won the SAG Award, et cetera. Um, in last year, Mar March of 2018, it already made $90 million. <laughs> it's surpassed $1 billion now. So when you talk about this idea of popular, that's popular because it's mass. A lot of people are going and spending money. It's popular because it's part of a popular thing, Marvel Comics, right? And it's also popular because people have decided that it is critically popular. Now it's winning these awards. So I think there's a multiple different things there. One of the things that's important about that film is the fact that the cast is almost completely African-American um, and that is such a huge thing about this idea of representation matters. So I don't know if anybody wants to join in on that topic. Well, I, I do think that pop culture, if we go off the definition that we are chatting about, pop culture can reflect the current socialness of society, and it can also create change of the social in society. For example, if we stem off the Black Panther movie, um, if you were around during some of the voting times, they were using theaters to register black voters when they were going to see the movie Black Panther. So they were using the movie, which was pop culture, to hopefully create some kind of change so that way, um, you know, voting turnout among black voters has been traditionally lower. And so if they can register the black voters when they're going to the form of pop culture, it can create more social and cultural change. So I think sometimes where pop culture reflects the current status quo, it can also help change the status quo. And I could add to that too, is that when I was at the Chicago Pride Parade this last summer, there were tables of people there being registered to vote. Um, so popular culture doesn't necessarily mean just in the movies or in a comic book or on television. It can also mean spaces. So like the Pride Parade, like Disneyland, you know, those kinds of things are also popular culture um, texts in a way because they are filled with all sorts of rhetorical messages and purposes and audiences and all those things. I, and I, I think that representation is, is very important. But if we talk about pop culture driving social change and Black Panther being sort of with the efforts to register black voters, it's sort of like, I don't, I don't know if Black Panther, I wonder what social change they drove in terms of the representation in the, in the film, it's, I, when I look at popular culture and, and social issues, it's often the reflection of what's already happening, right? So there's already maybe a movement afoot, and it's not the artists or the art that's driving that social change, it's just reflecting it. Um, or 
you have something like with the civil rights movement in the 1960s, you had a lot of music that was used by um, demonstrators, that was used in marches, and that became associated with the movement itself. Um, and then apart from that, there were plenty of songs that were written directly about the problems of racism um, and about the civil rights movement. But um, what strikes me in just reading that history is how much that the the protesters themselves used it um, in a way that maybe it wasn't the original intent of the song. Uh, so it, it's it's that popular culture gets wrapped up in social change, but I don't look at it as like a prime mover. And later in the discussion, I'll I'll hit up a few examples when um, musicians and other popular figures try to advocate for certain policies or for candidates in elections, how, how much of a failure that strategy has been, uh, at least in the recent decades. So what I'm hearing from the examples so far is that, I mean, even with um, Bill's example of maybe pop culture gets tied into social change in ways that aren't direct, or pop culture isn't the driver of social change, there, there's clearly a relationship between them, even if it may not be the driving force. So, and we can, we are gonna dig into that conversation a little bit further down the line, but let's do a little bit of a close reading, kind of, of, of the different kinds of pop culture that we are seeing um, maybe in our TV, in our movies right now, thinking about the different impacts that the different kinds of pop culture might have on the world around us. So we have, I think, positive and utopian versions of the world we live in, and those might have a significant impact or might influence uh, us in a particular way. And then also we have you know, things like Handmaid's Tales of dystopian visions of the future and like what kinds of things do do the either utopian Star Trek version versus the Handmaid's Tale, like dystopian version, how do those things operate both as popular culture and how we discuss and think about our present day circumstances? Can I? Yeah. yeah I'm sorry, I just spoke last. But it, when you bring up dystopian visions of the future, um, again, I think that's like we know a lot of art is produced, it's the context in which it's produced that informs the art itself. Um, that Handmaid's Tale, originally the Margaret Atwood novel, written in the 1980s, mm -hmm. right? Um, another dystopian uh, text, Blade Runner, film from the 1980s. Um, Robocop from the 1980s. There was a lot of uh, dystopian texts, uh, visions of the future, very dystopic visions uh, that came from the 1980s. Um, and we've sort of, with a lot of things, but we've, you know, rediscovered those. We're using those texts as the basis. So we have the television series Handmaid's Tale. There was the um, Blade Runner reboot came out recently. I think there's a Robocop either came out or is going to come out. So it speaks to our time where we're, we, uh, there might be a lack of originality when it comes to source material. But um, uh, in the 1980s, a lot of the, uh, those visions were coming from this uh, urban, visions of urban decay, of, uh, of poverty, of violence, and there was this, um, the, the dystopia caused by all of that, like the crack epidemic and, and drugs that, uh, that it could be solved with like a, 
with a strong hand, right? So when RoboCop is an example of that to come in and um, it's also a technological solution to a social problem, right? Having this robot cop that can come and set everyone straight. Um, and I just look at the parallels and Handmaid's Tale referring to sort of um, very conservative Christian, um, Margaret Atwood rebelling against that, sort of the repressiveness of the, uh, the, the Christian right in the 1980s. I mean, hers is a very political uh, allegory. Um, and we see not only we're reusing that source material, but we're looking at these problems in similar ways. If you look at the way pop culture deals with it, uh, with regard to uh, technological solutions to social problems. And for that, it would be like uh, global warming and all the problems associated with that. We, in popular culture, don't, I don't see any reflection of a solution to it other than superheroes or technology will save us. Um, if I'll, I'll go to maybe the utopian side a little bit. Uh, one thing that I've been noticing in pop culture is not necessarily a out-in-your-face acceptance of social change, but rather it's mixed in with the actual plots of what we're seeing. Um, Carrie and I, we work with the safe zone here on campus, which is a safe space for students, primarily of LGBTQ uh, orientation. And there is a process of coming out that I can use to parallel with pop culture. And there is like a moment where you're scared, and then there's a moment where you're out, and then there's a moment where you're celebrating being out, and then there's a moment where it's just part of who you are. And what I think is really great about some of the pop culture, and it can go back to the 80s, 60s, even today, is sometimes the social change isn't in your face celebratory, it's just part of what's happening. For example, um, if you go back to, um, I know Carrie will talk about this in a minute, but if you go back to Star Trek from the 1960s, there was um, Nichelle Nichols, who was really one of the very first black women on television who wasn't a slave or a maid. And she was an educated woman who was in charge, who had an actual role on the ship. And it wasn't ever really discussed as, wow, you're a black woman and you're on the, it was just who she was. And it was just part of the plot. And it was that Roman of acceptance which sort of filters into this idea of it's not abnormal to have this change. It's just part of what we've become. You know, if you think back to the Cosbys of the 1980s, um, it was one of the first times when a black family um, was the head of the household was a doctor, um, the man, and the female head of the household was a lawyer. And it wasn't ever this whole idea of, look how weird it is to have this black family who isn't on welfare and who isn't struggling to make ends meet. It was just part of who it was. And, and then and the humor revolved around not this social change aspect, but rather the social change had already occurred and the funny things were in the relational comedies. Um, and even if you, you know, think about even some of the today's like superhero shows, um, we just had an episode of, um, I believe it was 
the Gotham and the Green Arrow and the Flash. It was the one of the crossover episodes where they had the lesbian Batwoman. And it wasn't really this whole idea of, wow, she's a lesbian and how weird is that or how cool. It was just like that's who she was. And she still fought crime and was enemies to some people and friends to others. So I think it's really cool how we have um, a utopian idea where the idea of change isn't far-fetched, it's just part of what we've become. And yeah, definitely. Um, I would love to talk about Star Trek forever, <laughs> um, but I won't. Uh, so I will just say a couple of things. I, I understand Bill's point of view because we can't have correlation equals causation. I get that. But I also think that when some things are out in front of other things, it helps. So especially in this, this age of social media and everything can be sent instantly, so if a movement happens online, that actually spreads faster than something that is on television or somewhere else. So I actually have this really big nerdy article here about academic fandoms and how different numbers of things go online versus on television and all that kind of stuff and how quickly things can spread that way. So it's kind of a chicken and the egg kind of argument, you know, does this try make a social change from one side or the other? But what I could say about Nichelle Nichols being on the bridge of the Enterprise as an officer on the ship, how huge that was at the same time Martin Luther King was giving his speeches. I mean, actual history was happening and it was being reflected on television as a what we used to call social commentary, right? So she's on the ship. Um, and she wanted to quit. She actually wanted to quit the show. She felt like she wasn't really doing anything and she, wasn't un she was unhappy and she wanted to quit. And Martin Luther King Jr. actually said, please don't quit. You have no idea what it means to see you on the screen every week. And she stayed. We just met her <laughs> and she's awesome. Um, I was dressed as Wonder Woman at the time, but it, it was fine. Um, and she, she was just really, very, very, very nice and loves her fans and she is an inspiration to to not only people, you know, my age but older and even younger. I met fans in lines who were who were, were young and dressed up like her to meet her, you know, in her Star Trek uniform. Um, so it's an important thing that has spread into the new Star Trek um, series Discovery where we have the main character as an African-American woman um, who's the main character of the entire series. So I think that you can't, it's hard to say one causes the other or what reflects in society comes back on us in our, so in, our, in our culture. I mean, but if we go back to literature examples, which I have up here as well, the idea of what happens <laughs> in literature sometimes is a reflection of what's happening around that group of writers and then it spreads out into other things. So, you know, the French Revolution and the Romantics, for example, they didn't cause each other to happen. They just happened to happen at the same time, which ignited a whole bunch of other things to happen. And I think now we're living in a time where we can spread these ideas so fast and so quickly that it changes things. But on the flip side is, people kind of get into their fandoms <laughs> and they don't necessarily experience what's happening in other fan circles. And so if you're a fan of something that's not necessarily super positive or super inclusive or something like that, you might not see these social change elements happening. 
Um, but, you know, they're out there. But, I mean, there's been a lot of backlash in the Marvel world about the quote-unquote social justice warriors in Marvel by things like Black Panther and Ms. Marvel, for example. So I think it goes, it kind of goes all <laughs> directions and then around again. And you'll see it again and again and again. So, um, I don't know. I can't think of anything else to add. <laughs> can I just, uh, something you said made me think about, um, you're talking about how things can spread now with social media, right? And it reminds me of like, we, we used to make this distinction between high and low art or culture, right? So like literature and uh, visual arts would be prioritized and pop culture, things like comics, right? Not looked at as legitimate as serious works. And I think that's changed quite a bit. There's a parallel now with, um, you could say, high and low media, right? So things like Twitter or other social media, when they're used to spread messages and uh, to, to galvanize a group of people behind an idea, a policy, a social movement, they're often devalued, right? It's often looked at as not as legitimate. If, uh, if something's tweeted, it's it's like necessarily less legitimate than if it appears in the opinion pages of the New York Times or the Washington Post. Um, the the sort of older prestige media still holds a sort of sway for a lot of people as being just inherently more serious, more important. And there's no doubt differences between the way that um, news gets gathered and disseminated with the traditional forms. But when it comes to sharing opinions. Um, there's not fundamentally a difference whether you're at a um, the Chicago Tribune or the New York Times or if you're just sharing it on, on Twitter. I mean, you still have to, the elements of rhetoric in terms of making a, a quality argument still exist. Um, and there's, there's some problems with the what's so-called high or more serious media. They, they generally have a far more limited point of view. It's not as diverse. You don't get the same representation. And it's, I think, one of the reasons that a candidacy like, are you familiar with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or AOC, right? Um, she, was a, she was a bartender like less than two years ago and won a primary election, a really difficult, uh, no one thought she had a chance, primary election in New York City, largely by word of mouth and being incredibly good on Twitter. And, and being able to argue in that medium so effectively in a way that the um, uh, the incumbent just wasn't prepared for. Um, and that's something about, I think, where I'm totally optimistic regarding pop culture and social change is if you can master the media, uh, the medium in which you're, you're communicating, um, y you can overcome great odds. Um, and that's one where, so like utilizing the media. Now, of course, politics and Twitter is always you can't not think Donald Trump as well, so it's not. Well, <laughs> ethos matter matters, right? So yeah. if if someone is speaking on Twitter with you know just his or her opinion, maybe that doesn't carry as much weight as um, you know the senator from I don't know Florida or somewhere. I mean, it. I think that there. I mean, it's hard to equate two of those same things. I mean, everyone. I mean, I have a Twitter. I just mainly t live tweet Gotham right now. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. But other than that, I don't really say anything else on Twitter. But 
you know, ethos, I think, is part of that discussion. And so as AOC becomes more well-known, her voice spreads even further, right? Because, I mean, what's the number of people on Twitter? I mean, it's actually a small number of people in relationship to the entire world. And I don't have that number in front of me, but I know not everyone is. <laughs> so there's something to think about. Um, and I'll add one more example with the idea of being able to use social media. Um, I would consider Alyssa Milano very pop culture. She was one of the witches in Charmed, and you know she's known now for her Project Runway All-Star being the host. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe she was the one who actually tweeted about the Me Too movement originally. Yes. And you know she put out a tweet about you know if you've been assaulted or um, approached in a way that was not appropriate, simply reply. Me too, and it took off. Now I can't say M Alyssa Milano made the change in all of the laws and the Title IX movements, but I think she was an instigator. And then other people took her message through Twitter and made those changes. So I think this is actually I was going to bring that um, example up. I think this is a great convergence of what you have all been talking about, both um, Bill's point that it's not always uh, pop culture that's making the change, but we see in something like Me Too that pop culture definitely has is changing things, that it's, it is asking um, us to reckon with, with ideas and concerns that have been you know, swept under the rug for a very long time, but the Me Too movement, although popularized by that tweet by Alyssa Milano, was started by Tarana Burke, a black woman who mm -hmm. has created um, resources and a movement for black girls facing uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault. And so it's that convergence, I think, that we're seeing of a social movement that is already in place, like so many people have been doing incredible work around uh, sexual assault and stopping violence against women. but that without Twitter, without that social media aspect, we may not be where we are now. Like we could have had that Weinstein reporting, which was amazing, important news coverage, but it is that convergence of those things. And so seeing those convergences, I think more and more often now, um, mentioning like the president, mentioning AOC, um, the the people dressed up as Handmaid's Tale characters protesting in uh, Congress. What is the relationship between pop culture and our current political movement? Um, we've talked a little bit about what it's looked like in the past, but but are there things happening right now that we want to kind of uh, turn our attention to and keep an eye on? I mean, you've mentioned a few, but are there any others that that we should really be in considering? I have a thought that might not be exactly right this second, but it kind of ties a lot of these, these threads together. Um, in my Common on Two class, I often use an example um, from the television show, The People versus O.J. Simpson. Now, that trial was from the olden days in the 90s, <laughs> and um, it was remade for um, television, and it's out on DVD, and I think it's even on Netflix. And it, and it actually makes people revisit the trial through the 21st century perspective on the trial. So you actually look at things like race, you look at things like gender inequality, <laughs> um, you look at things that happened that were totally inappropriate to different people within the, within the groups that, that they're talking about in the show, all of those things. And so I think that kind of brings it back full circle into this idea of 
um, social media and, and so forth, when we can see ourselves reflected. So if I tweet something that another famous person likes, which happened to me once recently, it was super cool, um, I feel awesome. I don't, I don't really have a lot <laughs> going on, so that, that made my day, right? So um, that's part of it. I feel connected to that particular fan or the other, that or particular show or that particular thing, or in politics the same way. So if I feel connected to it, if I can tweet at the president because I want to tell him something, Maybe I can. I mean, I don't know if he reads those things, but I think it's part of this whole discussion about how we feel maybe a part of it now than maybe we didn't before. Um, and so I think it goes back to the representation of uh, people of color in shows, you know, like Black Panther, like in a movie, or um, Crazy Rich Asians is another example of that. Um, so when you see yourself reflected in something, you're more willing to to engage in it rather than just sort of like old, um, you know, classic literature that perhaps doesn't reflect a 21st century America. So I don't know if how that plays out. And otherwise. not only reflected, but reflected in a positive way. Right, yeah. Because I think a lot of minorities um, that don't see themselves in pop culture are often reflected very negatively, especially in the beginning. Um, where an Asian might be originally represented as just the smart person, or um, a LGBT person would be represented as very effeminate, or um, someone who might be sick. Um, and now we're getting to the point, and it's still very, very underrepresented, but where you see people who are all genders, all ethnicities, at least represented some way that's positive, it really makes an impact on how people view that. And then in, in far as politics goes, you know, people see these, these women dressed up like quote-unquote handmaids, and I really wonder how many people have even seen that television show, but they might actually know the reference, these are supposed to be handmaids, but they might not even know what that means. And so I think there might be a disconnect between that sort of popular culture usage in real life because I have, I be honest, I haven't watched the show. I read the novel, um, and I've studied the novel, um, but I have not watched the show, and I, I didn't watch the show on purpose because the novel was enough. <laughs> I don't need to see it on TV. <laughs> um, so, but I, I think that, I think that there's also, it could be a disconnect when people try to use popular culture in that way, that some people might not even get it. I mean, if you look up the numbers, how many people even get Hulu, and how many people actually watch it, it becomes a very, very narrow band. We think we have a larger audience sometimes than what we have. Well, and then my, I, I do have a pessimistic view about this here. Um, and it's the Handmaid's Tale costume you saw a lot during the, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court um, hearings in the Senate. And, you know, that was all in opposition to his nomination, and he was nominated, right? And uh, if you were on Twitter or other social media at the time, I mean, the popular opinion, so if we look at popular icons and music and film and television, other were overwhelmingly uh, in opposition to his, his uh, nomination. Alyssa Milano was literally in the room when the hearing was happening, and he was nominated. And if you go back a few years before that to 2016, um, one, one sort of, hilarious aspect of the Donald Trump campaign was 
the shabbiness of the celebrities that supported him. It was like Scott Baio and, uh, you know, Kid Rock. And, and that's uh, it. And, and that was it, right? Um, and on the other side, when it came to the general election, you had like Beyonce concerts in support of Hillary Clinton. You had Bruce Springsteen, who comes up every four years for the Democrats. You had Jay-Z. You had all of the biggest names. Uh, Chance the Rapper had an event downtown Chicago and then walked to polling places and had people voting and registering to vote, right? And she lost. And I think that it's symptomatic of the Democratic Party sort of taking for granted that I think popular culture, by and large, not, not entirely, but by and large, has, has absolutely um, is liberal, has absolutely embraced liberal values, social liberal values. I, I wouldn't say economic. Um, and this goes back, I don't know, I, I, I would, uh, you see lots of signs of this in the 1990s to the present, uh, certainly much more now. It's, it's hard to look at uh, much of popular culture and not see like diversity being celebrated, right? To not see, like other values that we would say are definitely liberal, but then when you look at how that translates into electoral politics, it's, it's pretty dismal. And so what you can conclude from that, there's a number of things. I mean, you certainly can say that there must be something going on where the popular opinion is in support of policies that people who win elections are in opposition to. So what's happening there? Is there voter suppression? Is there, you know? Um, but I think another thing is you can get complacent uh, if you are in support of a particular political candidate or a policy. You can get complacent by just looking and saying, well, everybody supports them, you know, like that's big, that has a name, you know. Lady Gaga has, you know, 20 million followers on, on Twitter and she's very much in support of this policy. And it can lead to a complacency, I think, when it comes to um, winning elections, when it comes to like making a change on the ground. Um, and, and it's, to wrap this point up, it's, if you look at the AOC and Senator Bernie Sanders in 2016, uh, she was completely out of nowhere. She didn't have celebrity, she didn't have the celebrity name, she didn't have endorsements. She had policies that were popular. Um, and if you look at Bernie Sanders, the same way. He's not a very charismatic guy, and he certainly was not the uh, most well-known or the most supported in pop culture. Uh, but he had policies that resonated with people. So pop culture often, it's if we look at um, social change defined as electoral politics, uh, I don't think it's, it's got a real good track record. Like you can, you can do really well in electoral politics and, and lose the culture wars. Well, I have two things <laughs> to say um, in defense of popular culture, I guess, but also in the idea that, that social change is incremental. That means it happens very slowly. It looks like it happens faster on TV. So that's, that's sort of the image that popular culture will give. It happens very slowly. Um, that's a very, it's a lot of sociological discussions of that. I'm not a sociologist. I do not play one on TV. But I will say that they use this term called, you know, anomi, right? So that's what happened in the 60s. Um, the idea that things were happening very fast around 
people with the civil rights movement. And so then people started to riot and, 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 and have different kinds of things in, in response to that social change. So I think that it happens fast on television, so we think it should happen fast in other places, but that's not necessarily true. Um, and, and you know, populist politics can speak to very certain demographics. I think that AOC would not win in a rural area, for example, with some of her policies. But since she's from a very urban area and she went out there and did the work, I saw her tweet about her shoes, that she wore the soles of her shoes out by walking and talking to people. That's not social media. <laughs> That's shaking someone's hand, looking them in the eye, and asking them a question and, and listening to them. And so I, I think that you know, there are a couple things happening there demographically. Um, what people believe in policy and all that is something different. But, you know, electoral college politics is very complicated, and I'm not sure that, that, that we can really get into that here, but, and I'm not, you know, a political scientist either. But what I would say, too, is that besides thing being very slow, it can be shown. So a show called Will and Grace, you may have heard of it, um, actually, a lot of people, um, a lot of popular culture scholars point to that show as a turning point for LGBT people in America. The fact that you had a gay man on television and he was, you know, part of this really interesting group of friends and, you know, lived a life. And a lot of people point to that as a turning point in the uh, marriage equality movement. So it took a decade. <laughs> It was faster, <laughs> right, on the TV show. Everyone was fine, everything was great. But it actually took a decade in real life. And so I think that um, it's hard for, you know, for us when we, when we live in this world where I can get something instantly. So, like, my Amazon delivery will be there when I get home that I ordered yesterday. Um, but I can't change politics in America in one election cycle. So, I mean, I think that there's, we have a, a very different... Um, set of rules there. I, I'll, I'll add into the whole idea of it takes a long time. Um, I used to teach a class called Communication and Pop Culture, and I taught that for about five years before coming to Moraine. And one of the units that we studied was on Charlie's Angels. And Charlie's Angels, um, many people in this audience may never have seen the original TV show from the 1970s, but in 2000, there was a reboot with Drew Barrymore and Cameron Diaz Charlie's Angels 2000, you may have seen the movie in reruns. Um, but originally, the premise of the show was there was going to be this one female private detective whose boss had all this money and she was going to go around and solve crimes. And when they did the test um, subjects of the show, no one believed that one woman was strong enough to solve crimes by herself. So they created three women. And they were like, well, if three women work together, she'll equal one man. And that's how the show came about. And that was in the 70s. And it's been years and years and years and years, and we're still trying to break through that glass ceiling of female equality to the male. So it takes a long time. And you know, if you add in the LGBT, um, Ellen DeGeneres was on that show in the 90s, the, um, the Ellen Show. And she had the puppy episode where she came out and on television, and her character came out on television, and the show was immediately canceled, mm -hmm. right? So, and now uh, she's super popular. And <laughs> a decade later, she's probably one of the most popular, well-loved celebrities of our time right now. 
So it takes years and years and years for these small incremental changes. But there are some like big ones that happen immediately, like Janet Jackson, Nipplegate. Um, back when she performed in the Super Bowl, her wardrobe malfunction um, exposed her nipple, and immediately the FCC passed a law saying, oh, sports can't be shown live anymore. So sometimes they happen immediately. Like R. Kelly, like since the Lifetime thing that's come out with R. Kelly that happened like January 5th or something of this year, he's now being investigated by the Chicago police for crimes that happened 20 years ago. It took a documentary um, to now show people, oh, he did crimes 20 years ago? Wait, what? <laughs> but with that, that had been reported a lot. Uh, Chicago, Jim DeRogatis, the... But the problem, if you watch a documentary, is that the documentary kind of exposes the complicit nature of some of the people around that, including mm. members of the Chicago Police Department. And so I think now the Chicago Police Department is trying to clean up its image and so, oh, of course we didn't do that. We're going to investigate him now. So, I mean, I think that there's, there's just this idea of accountability that's happening, but it took the documentary to do it. And... Um, you know that's unfortunate for the victims, and it, it's not it's not right. But I think in other ways, it's allowing people who didn't know about things to actually start learning about things that are new to them. Because in social media and in television and media in general, we only see the things we already like. We only see the things we already know we want to watch. So my Netflix feed is just filled with like sci-fi and that's it. I didn't even know there was a thing called the Outlaw King until my brother told me and it was really awesome. No one told me, right? But Netflix doesn't show it to me because it, it's like, oh, you don't watch that. So this idea that we're, we're so, we have so much interconnectedness is actually a kind of a false idea because we're actually more isolated than we think we are. Can I just last on the R. Kelly one, which is it actually I think illustrates the the power of pop culture. Uh, R. Kelly's crimes, well, he'd been convicted in a court of law, but the extent to them had been widely reported by Jim DeRogatis um, in Chicago Tribune, but published uh, in the New York Times. Uh, there had been a series of like podcasts and all of this, so the it was known, but. Absolutely, people in the entertainment industry and elsewhere remained complicit and, and uh, didn't come out. So then there's a uh, a television series, and what channel did it air on? Do you Lifetime. Know? Lifetime. So a Lifetime show comes on, and it's not that it's new information, but it reaches a mass audience. And so once it's in the sort of the blood, the lifeblood of the popular culture. People are talking about it, tweeting about it, because people hadn't read the lengthy investigative reports, perhaps, uh, and those complicit were able to get away with it. Now that it's out there, because people saw a Lifetime documentary, or, or I don't know if it was dramatized or what. No, it was a documentary. Documentary, mm -hmm. and, it, and then that makes change. And it's by virtue of that medium and the much wider audience. Well. I think it also, because it kind of shows what happened, so it was being reported upon that these things were happening and that, you know, that the illicit tape and all that stuff that happened. I remember when that was reported in the media. I saw the articles. I remember that. But what, what's missing is the fact that 
the lawyers for R. Kelly kept putting that trial off and off and off and off until the uh, um, the accuser was almost 20 years old. It's different to go into a courtroom with a 20-year-old than with a 14-year-old. So, I mean, it did it on purpose. And so they were able to delay the justice for that amount of time. So, of course, it's going to fall out of the news me media because there's other news happening. But and so the, the, the documentary does kind of show that and fills in those gaps for people who, you know, didn't follow um, every day what happened in that trial. And I don't think we I don't think we did. I mean, I think that we we saw, oh, OK, guess that's something happening. And OK, other things are going on. But I think when I saw Chicago 2, Channel 2 News being interviewed about that documentary, the day after I watched the documentary, I knew that that documentary was now really shocking to the people of Chicago, especially because they had all the attorney general and they had everybody on TV that day saying, oh gosh, we're investing, oh, we didn't do that, oh. And uh, that was totally, that was their way of saving face because they had now been exposed on a national level about something that maybe people thought that maybe they'd forgotten about. So you, this conversation I think to me is bringing up both the pros and the cons of social media, or of popular media. So in one hand, it's exposing, it can be an, an expose, it can bring attention to concerns of, uh, of to a mass audience that maybe weren't available before. But in the case of R. Kelly, in the case of, of lots of situations, it actually also, popular culture is what is covering up and what is keeping hidden things. So especially when we think about, like again, the Me Too movement, and uh, Harvey Weinstein and all of the the men who were accused in the past, their their popularity like kept them insulated from any kind of accountability. So, is there any? Um, and I'm, I I kind of just wanted to bring to the fore that kind of tension. Is there anything else that, or is there anything we should be looking out for as we are consuming popular media to make sure that we get the like the good pieces of it, the uh, you know the the social change pieces, the expose pieces, without falling into the trap of maybe being lulled into some complacency or being over like getting that popularity um, and that excitement and having it overshadow the real social issues that are at hand. Yeah, I, I think that this, you know, a lot uh, pop culture can, in certain media, become like a popularity contest, and so on Twitter, for example, or like Instagram, how many people follow you? Uh, you have clout, and those who don't, uh, it's like your voice doesn't matter in the same way. You literally don't reach the same amount of people, and if you want to, you have to respond to somebody to to get heard. Um, I think that there, there's always a, a, a criticism to be made of popular culture if it just comes down to, you know, who's got more followers, you know? I mean, would you say, uh, when it comes to music, for example, I've always liked bands that maybe weren't the most popular. So Radiohead's a big band. They were one of my favorite bands, still are. Uh, contemporary to them are a band Coldplay. I personally don't care for Coldplay, but they have a much bigger audience, much bigger reach. And I think that this idea that like just because something ha is more popular, has more people go see it or know it, um, that it's that it that it has some additional power, it speaks for other people, that it's better in some way. You can you can always criticize the art and say, well, that's too popular, and therefore it's it's harder for like a big Hollywood movie to get respected as a as a work of art, right? 
and uh and I think it's easy as a music fan to criticize a really popular band, you know, and it's and it's easy to like love a, a sort of lesser known one. Um, and to for my political point, it's just it's easy to look at very well known figures in our society, in the culture, and their opinions, the things they support, and on the one hand say, well, you know, Taylor Swift uh, endorsed a Democrat. Uh, well, her followers, they're going to go and they could just vote. They want to be like her. So they'll vote Democrat. And so Republicans, literally, there was an article that Carrie <laughs> shared with us where a Republican op-ed writer argued why pop culture matters and had this incredibly condescending line about the fans of Taylor Swift and said, for those loyal supporters not opposed to her lifestyle or objectively to her politics, imitating an idol is as simple as voting to the left. So this was like a call to arms of fellow conservatives that look what people are, are saying on Instagram and Twitter, like Taylor Swift, and if she says vote for a candidate that's a Democrat, we gotta, we got to address that right away. And I think it's condescending because I have much more faith in people your age to be a little bit more savvy in, in how you take in information and make decisions, that you're not as manipulated or you know, you're not as gullible as that. Um, and I just think that, so on the, on the right, they can overstate the extent to which famous figures influence politics. And like I said earlier, on the left, I think that we can take for granted that because the popular culture embraces liberal values, that that somehow means we're going to win elections, and it has not been the case. Well, I would just respond to the the idea that all of Taylor Swift's voters are a voting or uh, followers are a voting age. I mean, I think that we're starting from a false thing there because she's you know more you know on the young side. So maybe some of her followers on Instagram aren't aren't eligible to vote now, um, or the last election or things like that. So I think that you know we have to be careful with some of those kinds of numbers. But what I would say about popular culture, and I made this slide of things that you know if you use different things or talk about different things in class. My number one thing is always be familiar with the text. Popular culture studies, as far as like scholarship goes, is textual based. So we start with close readings of those texts. So you have to know those texts from inside and out. So that's where fans kind of come in. If you're a fan of something, if you meet somebody who has a fandom, they can tell you everything about their thing. I probably don't know their thing, but they're excited about it. So they know a lot about it. And that goes this idea of popular versus mass culture. I mean, something can be really popular, like Black Panther, for example, but not everybody um, went to see that because it was a superhero movie. That movie actually crossed um, audiences, right? So superhero fans went, Marvel fans went, and people who were just excited to see an all-black cast went. So I think that kind of illustrates the power of a draw like that. But if you equate that with some other superhero film, it's not the same draw. So audience is the key. So in rhetorical analysis, one third of the triangle is audience. So when you talk about popular culture, the audience is huge because these things are niche audiences. As I was saying before, how many people have even seen The Handmaid's Tale, for example? So there's a difference between popular and mass culture. And popular sculpture scholars make differences um, about that. And I would bring this um, one last point, and then I'll let John finish up. But I, I use popular culture in all of my classes. So Common 101, Common 02, and I also teach um, Britlet 
um, one and two and women's literature. And so I might show like a part of a film. So uh, Beowulf, for example, is something that we read in Britlet One. And I showed a scene from the Hobbit movie where the dragon is draped around all his gold and looking very menacing. Because in the story of Beowulf, they kill a dragon. And it's kind of fun to kind of see how those things work. What you might not know is the person who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit also did a translation of Beowulf. And so we, I use that as a way of talking about that next step. So as popular culture as an, an entryway into a conversation, like politics, for example. So if Taylor Swift tweets or posts something, oh, go do this, and I'm a young 13-year-old living in rural America and I don't know anything about it, I could look it up, right? Because Taylor Swift opened that door for me that I never thought about it before. And that's what popular culture does. Um, it allows for those conversations to happen. It may not equal social change, one plus one equals two, like happen right now, but it has the um, potential. And I think that's what frightens people and also inspires people at the same time. And uh, going off what Tish said earlier, Tish said earlier, something that we do need to be aware of is, going back to what Carrie said too, is our popular culture is only what we're exposed to. And several times, more often than not, most likely is, sometimes as a viewer or a consumer of pop culture, we forget that we're being fed certain pieces of pop culture, that it doesn't always come organically. Um, for example, uh, I'm a big America Ninja Warrior fan. And if I go back through all of the seasons of America Ninja Warrior, there aren't any gay warriors, right? Um, there was one, and it was really interesting in the media portrayal, they never cut away to his partner, where when the other ninja warriors come around, they show the family and the hugging of the wife and the, um, <coughs> and the media gives us what they think is okay. You know, even when you think back to the Olympics, um, this past year was the first time where we had two out Olympians. And, um, you know, if you read the stories and um, the interviews, they were constantly bombarded with the idea of they wouldn't get any media time if they were gay because the media wouldn't cut away to their partner, wouldn't cut away to like a family hug. Um, instead, they would cut away to the parents to support the athlete as opposed to the family, the immediate family. And so the media dictates a lot of the times what we see. And so as consumers of pop culture, I think that's something that, A, you have to voice your need for more diverse pop culture, but you also have to seek things that aren't in your necessary comfort zone, where, as Carrie said, you know, in her Netflix, she's only given, hey, you might like these four things, and we don't search. <laughs> and as you know, bookstores are going away and video stores are going away, um, we have a very limited exposure of what Google pops up automatically for us. Mm -hmm. So we have to be aware that we have to seek other venues that take us outside of our comfort area. And so a celebrity endorsing something is one of those ways, yeah. right? So <laughs> if I'm following that person on Instagram or something, then I can see that thing that I didn't see before. Um, so I learned a lot about um, Jane Austen. I have my Jane Austen action <coughs> figure right here. 
Um, you probably didn't know that Jane Austen had her own action figure, but here she is. Um, there's actually a line of Marvel comics of her novels. I've got Northanger Abbey here, um, which are, you know, obviously comic books, but they go with Jane Austen's novels, and they're actually the novel. They just have comics Im embedded with the text. And um, one of my former teachers is a Jane Austen scholar, and I met with her um, in January when she was in Chicago for a conference, and she just had a new book come out about Jane Austen and had a whole chapter on how the illustrations of Jane Austen's work when it was printed actually made it seem more Victorian, you know, because of the clothes and the outfits and things that were drawn for the illustration, but it actually was actually printed at the same time as Frankenstein in 1818. A lot of these things were written um, and produced earlier than the Victorian era. So even the popular culture, quote unquote, <laughs> um, in the olden days <laughs> of, of that time changed the trajectory and changed the audience's perspective on something based on that. So audience is huge. Audience is that third rail of the rhetorical triangle and that's what, you know, why, why news might have cut away from the families of the Olympians, for example, because people, some people would write in and say, oh gosh, I don't want to see that on TV, right? So they try to, I think, they try to manage those things in some ways rather than just letting people, I don't know, manage it themselves. So can I just, the, the contrarian point there is like, so as there's been much more acceptance, right, of LGBTQ, uh, right? It wasn't driven by those TV producers' choices to more represent, right, the actual who who's in our society, and it's it's we're sort of pressuring them. It's often like this: it's that as society has changed, then we pressure that representation in popular media, and it's sort of like if it comes a little before society had changed, like as in Ellen, the coming out episode, well, show got canceled, right? Um, and that was in the late 1990s, I think. In 2004, uh, in the presidential election, one of the signature issues, uh, George W. Bush ran on um, making same-sex marriage illegal, right? In states all throughout the country. And the Democratic Party's position on that was either okay, or very quietly were against it, but it was by f it was they were not vocal on it. Candidate Barack Obama in 2004 was against same-sex marriage, and then you skip to I think was it 2009 when uh, when the Supreme Court ruled right that you cannot uh, do that. So in in a few years it sh it flipped, and now we very much see uh, it we see a much more representative in terms of right same-sex representation you see on TV shows, not only in those stereotypical ways that you said earlier. I just don't think it was popular culture that pushed that. I think it was society had changed. Uh, there, there was a huge flip in terms of same-sex marriage. Uh, there had been change to policies. And then it becomes possible for, because the audience is so critically important and so large in, in mass culture, mm -hmm. um, then it became possible for that representation to be there. But it's, it's just, I don't see too many examples of in the past of where it's media portrayals or the culture uh, broadening society's horizons, and then people come around. It, it's I, it happens, I mean, I'll go back to Will sure. and Grace. Um, if, you, if you've never 
um, lived in small town America, I can tell you as someone who has lived in small town America um, and currently lives there, you can go um, and never see someone who might be doing something different ever, ever. And so if I'm seeing something on television that shows me there's a different world out there, I'm exposed to that. And there, I've read many articles on how this issue actually evolved a lot through popular culture and then allowed parents to say, you know, these are my kids and I'm, I'm going to love them. And, you know, and seeing positive portrayals of them on, sh on TV helped that. And again, we can't say correlation, causation. I think that there's sort of like a continuous circle of things. Things go forward a little bit um, and then they go back. So Ellen loses her show, but then it goes forward again. And it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And that's, that's so those sociological issues that happen. But if people didn't have representation on television, and in the olden days, television was the thing. I mean, it was before social media, before Netflix, before all this stuff. And it did make a difference. And there's been a lot of research saying that it did make a difference. And it makes a difference to people who never see any diversity in their lives. So go drive an hour from here, any direction probably, and you will find that. So if someone doesn't see that in any way and they don't see themselves, that's why a lot of LGBT youth leave rural America as soon as they can. And that's also been very well documented. So I think that it's important to kind of just realize that those kinds of things, just because something is driving other things doesn't necessarily mean that it caused it. I think that there is a wave of change and that wave of change started probably in the civil rights movement where you had <laughs> some of the LGBT movements that were happening concurrently um, in New York City, for example. But I, I mean, I think that it's, it's difficult to, you know, again, chicken and egg. <laughs> I don't know what starts the other, but representation matters and representation pushes things forward um, in a way that can make people um, feel a little bit more comfortable. But I, I would definitely disagree that we have equal representation in, in media today in any, in any way. I do think it still shows dominant culture um, heteronormative culture um, as the theme. And I think that I agree with that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree with you on that. I'm not, we do not have like this, no. Right, and I think, I mean, I think both of your points um, are really valid in that um, representation is super important. It's important that people see themselves reflected in television, and it's important that people see what is possible. And without that possibility of particular kinds of relationships or what it means to act out in a certain way or make social change, like it's hard to create something if you've never seen it. So, so that representation is important, but also we need a lot more movement than just the culture that we consume, like to actually make social change. So we need those policies and we need activism and all kinds of movements to push ourselves forward. Um, we are coming close to the end of our time together. So um, I wanna leave uh, some time for you all to ask questions, but I thought I'd end it maybe just with something fun. So. If you wanted to share like your top pop culture, like most meaningful, like the thing that you think should make, like could make change or has changed you, what is that thing? That pop culture thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, all of you. Like I need a list. We're gonna, we're gonna wrap it. <laughs> this is, that's gonna be our last question <laughs> and then we'll turn it over to the audience. <laughs> 
I guess, Carrie, you can just root down that list. That's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, if I were to tell you all the things that I love, we'd still be here for tomorrow, and we don't have school tomorrow, so you don't want to do that. Um, you know, outside of Star Trek, obviously, um, I think Captain America, the Winter Soldier, changed the game changer in superhero films. Um, Battlestar Galactica um, is a fantastic science fiction series. Um, the Sandman is another great way of looking at some um, traditional uh, literature. Um, the Rolling Stone, Sympathy for the Devil, is amazing if you read that along with some romantic poetry because you can kind of get some critical themes and analysis through them. Um, so there's lots of different things, but I guess, you know, everyone has to find theirs. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That, that was going to be mine, Buffy. <laughs> um, the way Buffy has empowered uh, feminism, uh, being a normal person who becomes a superhero and how she's able to be a badass while still looking pretty doing it. It blends all this idea of feminism together, which helps perpetuate, I think, gender equality. Wow, this is a big one about like uh, personal, I mean like favorite. I have many more, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't even read my whole list. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I can't think of one that like that, changed my mind just off the bat. I mean, uh, when I was a f college freshman, the first book that I had to read for my English 101 class was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that one very much opened my eyes in ways that few texts have and remains one of my favorite pieces of literature. And it was a, a popular book. It's been around, I mean, I don't know how much it qualifies as pop culture, but there's a movie, uh, a Spike Lee movie, Malcolm X, that <laughs> well, Ray Brown would say that pop culture is the cultural everyday life, the things yeah. that we come across every day. So he would make a distinction of what is and what isn't. Yeah. <laughs> so then, then here's my last one, which would be, I've, I've mentioned several times, uh, media. And I think in our moment, right, there's certain media platforms and media. One of them is, I think, podcasts. I think podcasts are such a, a perfect media for our times and especially if you want to open your eyes to something the format allows that and so I would explore podcasts on topics that you're kind of interested in and maybe even listen to some different perspectives or um, but that yeah podcasts podcasts nice um, okay thank you so much for your time and your insight into pop culture and social change. Um, audience, do you have any questions before we wrap up and go home? Yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you for yeah, sharing. No, I think that's wonderful. That just goes right back. Yeah. Oh, we were talking about how um, in 2004, did you say? In 2007. In 2007, that um, more female wrestlers were being um, portrayed. Yeah. Okay. What was? The, do you remember the hashtag? Give divas a chance. And so it was a wrestling. Trying to equalize time between yeah. male and female wrestlers. And so that goes TV. back to this idea of representation, right? When we see ourselves represented, 
um, it makes it makes it seem possible, right? And it's important. No, great example. Can I ask a question to the audience? Please. Do you like it when we use pop culture texts in our classes? Like I teach Com 101, like Carrie, and uh, do you do you like it when we give assignments where you get to you know watch a show or or something that you already enjoy and write about it? You do. That's been my like idea going like when I've used it and I th uh, there's an anecdote a couple years ago <laughs> where I was like we were analyzing the rhetoric of of television commercials and uh, and I was like the biggest day for commercials is the Super Bowl you know so I'm like oh I've got this awesome assignment when you watch the Super Bowl you're gonna analyze some commercials and I came up with all this stuff and I was thought it was great and I'm like everyone's gonna watch Super Bowl or you know and then I realized I'm like I gave everyone homework during the Super Bowl, that <laughs> you can't just watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> so that's one thing I learned about. You gotta be careful. Well, and and I have been doing for a couple of years now a speech where you have to do an informative speech over pop culture, like pick your favorite musician, your favorite band, your favorite TV show, and um, I kept getting feedback from students saying, "I don't have time to watch TV. I don't have time <laughs> to listen to your music, or not my music, their music." And um, I was getting a lot of backlash mm -hmm. from making my students do an assignment on pop culture. And um, so I thought that was really hurtful. I've had that experience as well. And I have students in my one and two class actually choose their own. Oh, it's OK. No, I've had that experience in my 102 class where I've had people choose their own text. Because a lot of people, they don't they feel like they don't have a text. And so my advice to everyone is, you know, find your thing. Find your show. Find your find your fandom because it's fun. I think that's a great note to go out on. Find your fandom. <laughs> <laughs> um, and make some change, whether that's through creating awesome pop culture or getting involved and changing some policies. Um, Thanks again for showing up. Let's give our panelists a round of applause. <laughs> and stay safe. And